want to begin with a question. Um, have you ever had to wait for a long time for something? Dwight, you want to answer that? We've all had to wait for a long time for something before. Hopefully it's not for a sermon to end. But, but we've waited, and waiting can be, at times, excruciating, especially when you're waiting for something that you're wanting. Maybe it's for a loved one to be healed. Maybe it's for a big day to arrive. Maybe for it's someone to return home. But we wait and wait and wait, and the waiting can be, at times, maddening. I think all of us over the past couple of years can relate to waiting, waiting to get out of quarantine, to be able to go about life in a normal way, to be able to go into a store and not see mask signs, not have to section off parts of our auditorium or provide other services. But we've all been in a period of waiting waiting for something to happen and something to change. And the problem with waiting is you don't know when the waiting will end. And you also don't know what it will look like on the other side of the waiting. How different things could possibly be. I want to read from Isaiah 42. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. His teaching, or in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. If you've been here over the last several weeks, we've been in the book of Isaiah waiting with Isaiah, waiting for the promised Messiah. Chronologically, Isaiah 42 comes about 200 years after where we left off last week in Isaiah 11. And it covers this massive range of history and a couple of different kings. But we need to kind of fill in the gap between Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42 so that things make sense. Because in that gap, what Isaiah does is he presents this tale of two cities, the New Jerusalem and the Old Jerusalem. And he gives you a choice which one you want to be a part of. Do you want to continue in the way of Old Jerusalem, which is defined by idolatry and injustice? Or do you want to be a part of New Jerusalem? That is this kingdom built on hope and justice and peace 
and the will of God being done throughout the earth. And as someone hearing the words of Isaiah, you get to choose which city you want to belong to and which city you want to pour your life into. And so after he gives you the choice, he presents these two kings. The first king is named Ahaz. And I think if you were to to define Ahaz's reign, it would be idolatry and injustice that really became the definition of this nation of Judah. And Ahaz is worried about the big bully Assyria. And Assyria began in Israel, and they were moving south, taking more and more cities, taking more and more kings, more and more plunder for themselves as they moved towards Jerusalem. And as Assyria moves into Judah, they are basically surrounding the city of Jerusalem. One glance over the city walls and you see the enemy surrounding you on every side. And Ahaz is afraid. And so Ahaz goes and he makes this alliance with another nation called Egypt, who we've all heard of. And he says, hey, we're going to be partners so that you can protect us from Assyria. And Isaiah steps in and he says, hey, wait, 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 this is a really bad idea. Do not make this alliance. You see, throughout the history of Israel and now Judah, we've heard the prophets, the judges, the kings step in and speak on God's behalf, saying, be really careful who you put your trust and hope in. And here Ahaz has a choice. Am I going to listen to Isaiah's words? And continue to trust in God? Or am I going to make an alliance with Egypt? And Ahaz, who we're told is a horrible king, makes an alliance with Egypt. And things go from bad to worse. And Assyria is right there on their doorsteps. And yet somehow God relents and does not allow Israel to attack and defeat Jerusalem. But they don't leave. And the next in line is Ahaz's son. Ahaz's son is named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a good king who brought people back to God, who restored the temple, who found the book of the law, and brought people together around being the people of God. And Hezekiah is still faced with the exact same situation that Ahaz was, with Assyria knocking on the door. But unlike Ahaz, Hezekiah, it says, humbles himself, and he prays to God, And he says, God, I need your strength, I need your help, I need your power, I need you to deliver us from the hands of the Assyrians. And so the next morning, here's what happens when Hezekiah wakes up. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 
in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. And he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So he humbles himself. He handles it totally different than Ahaz. Where Ahaz says, I'm going to go make an alliance with Egypt. Here, Hezekiah says, I'm going to continue to trust God. And God delivers them. But on the hills of this defining moment in the history of Judah, Hezekiah becomes very sick. Sick to the point that he's going to die. And Isaiah comes to him, and on behalf of God, he says, Hezekiah, you need to get your house in order because your days are numbered. They are few. You are near death. And Hezekiah is angry because he's been a good king. And he's followed God, and he, he's questioning, he's wondering, why is this happening? And so Hezekiah, he turns his face to the wall, and he prayed to the Lord, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion, and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So Hezekiah goes to God again. And he begs and he pleads. And God answers again. And he says, Hezekiah, I'm going to give you 15 more years to live in good health. And he restores the health of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah says, okay, this is the defining moment in my life. From this day on, I will trust God completely. I will not turn away. I will be your servant. I am going to serve you throughout my life. And Hezekiah does. Until Babylon comes knocking. You see, Assyria was still the big boy on the block. And there was still fear. But there was this new rising power called Babylon. And Hezekiah invites some of the leaders into his palace. And he says, I want you to look around and see everything I have. And they're very overtaken by it. And they make a deal. Let's make an alliance so that Assyria does not overtake us. And Isaiah once again comes to Hezekiah. And he says, no! This is a terrible idea. Do not do it. Because if you make this alliance, at some point they will turn on you. And you will find yourselves as their slaves. Hezekiah against the advice of Isaiah, against the word of God, makes an alliance with Babylon. And at first, everything goes really well. 
It's actually not till about a hundred years later when Babylon turns on the nation of Judah, attacks and destroys Jerusalem, and carries the people off into exile. And it's fascinating that a decision that one person made a hundred years before has such a massive impact on the life of a nation. One decision changes the course of history for this nation. And they find themselves as exiles. And that's where Isaiah 39 ends. And Isaiah is basically broken up into two books. One through 39 and then 40 through the end of the chapter. But what happens with chapter 40 is really fascinating. Because what happens in chapter 40 is the return of the peoples from exile. And so you have about a 150 to 200 year gap between chapter 39 and 40. And yet Isaiah is the one either telling this story or he is the one telling this story through his disciples and future prophets. But regardless, the word from Isaiah comes in chapter 40 that welcomes the people back from exile. They get to return home and experience what they've heard, these great stories of this nation. The invitation is here. And the hope is new Jerusalem could now begin as they get to go back. But one of the things I'm sure you know is going back is never what you thought it would be. I remember the very first year out of high school. Went off to college, and I went back for our homecoming game the next year in high school. And, and it's fascinating. It's, you know, a, a year, less than a year, since you graduated. And you go back with these expectations of how things will be and the people that you'll see, and how you'll just pick up like it was yesterday. But when you go back, and you enter through those gates, and you go into the stadium, everything feels different. And that's with a year. Here, we're talking about things that people didn't even experience. They're talking about going back to experience what their ancestors experienced. We're talking about going back 200 years. And there are these expectations of what this new place will be when Jerusalem is restored. And I think there's this expectation that we're going to go back and everything's going to be as it's supposed to be. But it's not. Things are different. Things have changed. And yet, in spite of the changes, in spite of going back, they still find themselves waiting. And the question would be, as they come back, 
Has Israel learned its lesson? Has Israel looked at its past and seen how God told them, don't have a king and don't make an alliance? And yet time after time, they do what they want to do. Have they learned a lesson from this? Will things be different this time? Or will we, will we see once again that in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, God remains faithful? In spite of time after time, Israel choosing their own path, their own way, God continues to love and pursue them. See, because there's one thing that hasn't changed in the 200 years. Sin is still a problem. Idolatry and injustice are still a problem. And so this is not make sure you get this right and then God will show up. Instead, this is because you cannot get this right. God is going to show up. That God is going to be faithful when Israel is unfaithful. So what is the solution? How do we move forward when we live in this constant state of sin? How do we move forward when we continue to repeat the past? And you think, how, how do they not learn from the mistakes how, how do they make mistake after mistake and find themselves seemingly at rock bottom and then choose the same decision again and again and again? How is it possible? I mean, I know that's something we don't relate to because that was back then and it's totally different now. But we find ourselves retreading the same paths, don't we? Going down the same road. Finding the same result. Saying this time is going to be different. We're not going there again. Until we find ourselves back in that place. Making the same promise over and over. So what then is God's solution? How will things be different? And it's the promised seed, that root of Jesse that we talked about last week. Prophesied 200 years before this is written. And here in Isaiah 42, we have the first of what's four different servant songs or suffering servant songs. Where Isaiah describes this servant of God. And it begins like this. Here is my servant. The, the literal translation is, behold my servant. It, it's Isaiah with this very emphatic, look, behold, he's here, see him. To grab our attention. Because the primary role of a prophet is to pay attention to the work of God in the world. To bring our attention to it. And to call us to join him in his good work. That, that is what Isaiah 
and all of the prophets do. They say, look, here is God at work in this world. Join him. Be a part of what he is doing. But he says, behold, here is my servant. And it's interesting that he uses this word, servant. Because a servant is not what you would expect from a savior. You wouldn't expect someone to show up who is going to be king and say, I'm going to be the servant. Because the servant isn't noticed. In fact, if you could say anything, a servant is unnoticed. They're behind the scenes. And I think Israel and Judah, if you were to ask, what do you need? They wouldn't say, you know, if we could do it our way, I think we would want a servant. I think they would say, we want a king. We want a tyrant. We want a dictator. We want power. We want majesty. We want might. We want coercion. We want someone who's going to come in and make things happen. Not a servant who's going to be unnoticed in the background. But yet servant becomes the primary word God uses to describe how he will deal with his creation in a redemptive way. He says, Behold, here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. The promise is not what they expect the solution would be. We don't need a servant who's going to calmly walk through the streets and announce the kingdom is here, come and follow me. Who's going to be gentle and humble. We want someone who's going to stand on the steps of the temple and cry out aloud and yell and bring fire. We don't want someone who's come to wash the feet of the people who follow him. We don't want someone who's going to go touch the lepers. Who's going to associate with women of questionable character. We want someone who's going to come in power. We don't want someone who goes unnoticed. We don't want someone with no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. Someone who's despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar. We don't want that in a Savior. Like one when people hide their faces 
and held in low esteem. We don't want someone to take up our pain and suffering. We want someone to end our pain and suffering. We don't want someone who is God to say, I don't consider equality with him something to be used to my own advantage, but makes himself a servant for those he's come to save. It's interesting. When we imagine what we want and need in a Savior, it's almost as if we imagine the exact opposite of what Isaiah is saying we're going to get. I mean, because wouldn't it be nice if God just came down from heaven right now and said, you are faithful and everyone else is going to be turned to me or they're going to die and it's just done. That's not what he does. He comes down in the midst of a world in pain and suffering. And he enters into it. And he walks beside those who are in pain and suffering. As he himself experiences the exact same pain and suffering. The one who has the power to pull himself out of it chooses not to. Why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't He do something? God, where are you? But what if He is? And we're simply missing it. What if He is showing up in ways that we never expected? And yet we don't see. Because we hear the powerful words from Isaiah 11. And we think we need wolves and lions and snakes to get things done. Power. Coercion. Not a humble servant. But the humble servant comes to save. And God says that this humble servant is my choice, the one I delight in, the one Israel should hope in, the one who my spirit will rest on, the one who will bring justice to this world. He enters our world promising only his presence, promising to be with his people. suffering servant Israel waits for. But you thought 200 years was a long time to wait. They return from exile beginning in about 530 B.C. There's still a lot of waiting to come. There's still a lot of waiting. 
and the people know what to look for. They've heard the prophets. They know a day is coming. But they don't know when. They don't know what it looks like on the other side. And as he comes, he comes in a way that no one expects. The writer of the Gospel of Luke tells the story of how Jesus' birth comes about. As they had gone down for a census, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, in the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them. And I was reading this account of really what Isaiah, suffering servant, is going to do. The people know all the signs. It's a virgin that's going to conceive and give birth. They know what to look for, but yet somehow they still miss it. Born under the cover of darkness, in a barn, in the back alleys of Bethlehem, in the small corner of a massive global empire, the king of the world steps down from heaven, and he enters our world, and yet the people miss the signs. They missed all the signs that pointed to this coming king, and they're completely unaware of it. To the point that he's in a town, the town of David, and yet no one recognizes that this is the moment that will chant, transform and change history as God becomes a man, comes into our world. So much so that there was no room for them in the town. One thing I know is we tend to make room for things we view as important. When we think something is important, we clear out space, we open our doors, we make room. And here, no one has room. No one has room for God's Son I guess the question this morning for us is there room in your life 
for Christ coming into the world. Because here's the beauty of this moment. God enters the world as a person. Now, God enters the world through a person. You and I. You see, your vocation and Mary's vocation are very similar. That God's Spirit would dwell in you and you would be the vessel through which His Spirit comes into this world. That was the very thing God told Mary would happen in her life. And it's the very thing he's promised would happen in yours. That you would be the vessel through which God's Spirit came into this world. And this morning, just simply ask, is there room in your life for him to come into our world? Because as I said, we, we tend to make room for the things that we find important. Is there room? Is there space? And as God comes into this world in gentleness and humility, do you even notice? Do you you notice Him through the people around you? Or do you find yourself so full of despair and hopelessness at times that you can't see it? You can't see it in the person coming to help you and speak to you and spend time with you. You you can't find it through the, the peace that he will give you if you simply ask him. Because so many times, In our life, I think we're like Hezekiah. Where we humble ourselves and pray and God shows up. And then there are these other times where we say, I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to make my own alliances. I'm going to form my own pact. Because I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know how he's going to do it. See, we want God to come in the wind and the fire, but he comes in the whisper. We want him to come in power, but he comes in gentleness and humility. We want him to come in beauty and majesty, and yet he comes in simplicity. He heals our humanity by assuming our humanity. By becoming like us. But the beauty, the beauty of this story is that your vocation is very much the same as Mary's. You will be the vessel through which God's Spirit comes into this world. as we look for God, as we search for God, as we question, 
God, where are you? We hear these words, I am with you. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. Father, thank you for this time. Father, I pray your blessing on us. Father, as we get to be the people that bring your presence into this world. And Father, it's our hope that those who are hopeless today would be filled with hope because you are with us. Those who are hurting today would find comfort because you are with us. Those who are sick and battling disease today would be healed because you are with us. Those who are lonely and afraid would find courage and strength today because you are with us. Thank you for coming among us. Thank you for saving and redeeming us. Thank you for not giving up on your people. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.